Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the TSG Podcast. Just a huge disclaimer before we begin that all content produced on this channel is for education and entertainment purposes only. Enjoy the episode. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Surrounding Game Investing Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Sean. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, this week has been a very interesting week, at least for the market-wise, hasn't it? Yeah. I don't know. What 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 was some things that you found really interesting this week? I mean, the whole federal Fed uh, making their release statement and then the stock market going back up, at least up until Wednesday. Now it's kind of teetering a bit. What's what's your take on that? I was surprised at. Uh, the way the stock market went up yeah um it's it's you know it's really hard to explain the reasoning for why something like that would happen i always take it with a grain of salt mm-hmm. however i think the probably most likely explanation um is that people stopped people it's basically a measure of people's assessment of the Fed and whether they're going to continue to tighten as hmm. much as they say. Well, mm-hmm. I think so when there's there's things that make it look, you know, there's things in like the credit markets, markets that could break and cause the Fed to turn. Mm-hmm. I think people see those risks mm-hmm. and then they want to get into the stock market because they think, that's going to make the Fed turn, basically. Hmm. So would you say this is more of a speculation or emotional up and down? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like a lot of people are very, they're, they're hopeful, right? That the policies are A-OK and things will get better. But we are coming up to the end of the second quarter, at least the time of this recording. We're, we're ending June today uh it you know is and if we have a negative growth this quarter we will be in two quarters in at negative decline which is by definition according to you know the federal policy is a recession Mm -hmm. so sometime within the next two weeks um i don't know i mean people are hopeful and if I mean earnings, I mean just earnings within the last week or two for uh, most companies have been really good uh, lately. So I think a lot of investors are becoming a little bit more confident, at least in the overall just feel of what the GDP could be. But you know, again, if if it's a negative again, and the Fed says, "Hey, we are now officially in, the United States is officially in a recession." I think that's going to cause a huge uh, <laughs> emotional response, uh, to say the least. Yeah, I think um, I've seen people looking at um, at corporate earnings projections mm-hmm. and how a lot of them have been um, downgraded, and a lot of companies are basically saying, "Look, we're gonna." We're going to have a large time, a hard time making profits for a while, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think, um, I I think people are maybe a little more hung up on the the idea that the Fed is going to pivot, mm-hmm. um, and I think that you're right that if if we 
find out we are technically in a recession mm-hmm. that could uh, cause people because the one of the things if you look back in economic history is sometimes we'll go into recession the fed mm-hmm. will start printing money to get us out of it mm-hmm. that doesn't just immediately quickly fix everything you know so no, if if everybody if all of a sudden companies are having a hard time making profits and the prices of the inputs are going up the prices mm-hmm. of you know um oil and gas and mm-hmm. you know commodities uh metals all these things are still massively expensive mm-hmm. that uh that means companies are going to have a hard time making money for, you know no matter what happens yeah and if companies have a hard time making money and they report those i don't know on their quarterly earnings or even their annual earnings report investors are going to lose a lot of confidence at least in that sector of the market and overall uh, potentially the united states market so i mean that's essentially what we did see in japan uh Still today, I mean, after that 1997 bubble popped, you know, Japan's economy has has been slowly uh, dwindling, <laughs> just to put it mildly. I mean, uh, they, they've tried their quantitative easing. They're, they've tried to encourage, you know, the population to start spending again, but that still hasn't been working, at least for the Japanese economy. And there's been talks at least this week alone on the Barron's uh, newspaper, as well as all the other uh, Wall Street Journal, that the yen is is pretty much, again, correct me if I'm wrong, going to zero, uh, or at least it's it's incredibly weak right now. Yes, yes, it, it is. That's definitely, yeah. especially against the dollar. Yeah, I mean, and... I don't know. A lot of economists and a lot of YouTube videos that I've seen lately it has been trying to compare what's happening, what's happened to Japan to where we are potentially headed. In my opinion, I, I think they're kind of mixing apples with maybe Asian pears or you know some variety of apples. It's not really apples to apples, but it's like apples to oranges in this case, uh, where I, I really think that... You know, Japan's infrastructure and the culture in general plays a huge role, at least for their reasoning for the deflation uh, situation that they're in currently. I think that the United States might be on the same path, but I don't think it's going to take the same exact role, especially with the whole idea that every citizen is going to save or they're going to be hoarding money or, or stuff like that. Um, culture wise, I, I, I don't feel that. I, I don't know. What about, am I, am I incorrect to say that? I, I feel that yes, we're saving a little bit more, but we're not going to be to that standard where we're just going to hoard everything, all the money that we make and just put it away, uh, for a rainy day. Um, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think the, the big concern would be the opposite. Yeah. That if prices are going up, uh-huh. Um, people are going to want to spend their money. Rapidly. Yeah, you're talking about the U.S. right now, right? I'm talking about the U.S. I mean, look at what yeah. happened with the whole stimulus situation, right? When we injected the economy with the stimulus packages, you know, fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred, twenty-two hundred, whatever amount of money that people received. I, I know it was like a wide variety depending on your situation, but when we injected, or at least when the U.S. government injected the the whole, uh, what do you call it? stimulus package we saw actually an increase in spending 
increase of uh, e-commerce spending. I, I mean, like all the e-commerce, uh, or at least most of them, especially Amazon, saw a huge increase in revenue because of the excess cash. And so, for me, that that means that you know, as we're hitting more of a deflationary, not really deflation, but as we're hitting more of a downward trend in the economic cycle, uh, the 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 behavior of spending is still there. And I think we're, it's going to be a while before we're going to hit like Japan level where we're not going to spend anymore. Because as Ray Dalio stated in his uh, amazing uh, short 30-minute video on how the economy works, in order for an economy to be prosperous, you got to keep spending. And once people stop spending, that's when we really hit a negative downward trend in the market cycle. And so that's what Japan's been going through right now. And, you know, all their most of their citizens are not spending. And most of the companies that are increasing their revenue are paying it back to the investors in a form of dividend and not spending. So it's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's just going to continue on to that downward spir- spiral until they're able to pay off their debt. But with the whole inflation jacked up prices, it's really hard for even the citizens of Japan to pay off their debts in a timely manner. At least that's to my understanding. And so if we're comparing that to the United States, I'm not sure we're going to be following that exact same path. Right. Yeah, I don't think we would follow that exact same path either. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, there might be some broad similarities with what's going on in Japan and what will happen with us in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the fundamental issues they have is a demographic yes they don't have new workers they don't have a lot of people who are uh entering the ages of you know 20 25 30 35 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and entering the workforce and entering into skilled jobs Mm -hmm. so they do have a very very large number of old people who need to be supported yes and so america has less of that problem we have a good number of people who immigrate to America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we also have uh, still a much higher birth weight than Japan, although our birth rate is not super high. So I think demographics uh, could become a drag like 10 years from now. Well, right now, like that, but well, right now, not really. Yeah. Well, right now, the demographic of the United States, at least on the populationpyramid.net, is actually declining. We're declining in birth rates because in order for us to maintain a population, every family needs to at least have two child per household or two children per household, right? Because if we want to replace the population, the current population, every family, which has a mom and a dad, needs to have two children to make up for that mom and dad once they pass away. And so right now we're seeing a number, I think less than two, I think it's a rough. Uh, and again, I, I don't know the exact numbers. I, I, I remember the numbers from like 2014, 2015, but I think it was like 1.8 to 1.6 uh, child per household. So it's like one and a half child per household on average. And so we are slowly shrinking. Japan is at like one right now. Uh, per household so yeah it, it, we're, we're we're shrinking and as we're shrinking the population like you said it, it's going to be much harder because now we're not going to have 
a huge population in the workforce, well, things are also becoming more automated too. So the jobs that were there for the labor market is now being replaced by auto manufacturing machines. That means that the current population or the new population has to increase their skill set past the labor uh, mark where it's being replaced. So we're, we're going to have a huge tangle, <laughs> so to speak, at mm-hmm. least from the way I see it. And I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, look at China right now. China with their tax uh, situation. I know you sent me a video uh, earlier this week uh, on the whole tax situation, but you can also play that into the idea of the population declining as well in China. And mm-hmm. for, for China to maintain their expansive economic growth, they need more of a population to be able to replace the current workforce down the road. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's a tough situation. It's a sticky situation. Uh, and, and it's a situation that fortunately in us, us in the United States, we're able to immigrate a lot. We have a very good immigration policy, at least uh, that's why people immigrate here. Again, I'm very non, non-knowing. I, I don't know too much about the whole immigration policy, but I, I would assume that because you know we are the United States and a lot of people immigrate from here, that I would assume that the the uh, workforce is is still well balanced, so to speak, in terms of hardworking, productiveness, competence, etc. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, compared to other parts of the world, mm-hmm. um, we get a lot of uh skilled migrants you know Mm -hmm. people who speak english Mm -hmm. as well as um you know unskilled migrants Mm -hmm. um just compared to other parts of the world we do pretty well Mm -hmm. and so that'll help uh reduce the pressure from having less kids Mm -hmm. well at least for the native ish population right so Mm -hmm. but overall like this this whole uh, situation of the market I think it's fascinating currently just to see what's happening in the market right now. And look at cryptocurrency and look at Bitcoin. Let's go back to Bitcoin now. Bitcoin mm-hmm. went above 20,000, I think, earlier this week, right? So yep. it, it popped back up. Now, is it going back down or is it like staying the same? I think it went back down a little bit. Yeah, it is okay. uh, now 19,000. So. Is that 19,000? But yeah. er, like last week, it was at like 18,000, 17,000, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. For a short time, so, yeah. It looks like Bitcoin is is fairly weathering the storm right now. I mean, yes, it lost most of its valuation, at least sixty percent of its valuation earlier this year, but it's it's still up and up up and running, right? And so, yeah. And I, I remember reading an article earlier today that says that some analysts said that there's still a forty percent upwind or or uh, improvement in the Bitcoin pricing. Uh, what do you think of that? Um. Did they give like a time frame? Or- uh, no, I, I I skimmed the article. I just saw the title. I was like, oh, cool. That that might be something that Sean might know about. <laughs> so, yeah, I think Bitcoin. Um, I'm still bullish on it. Okay. I would say, you know, um, usually you would want to hold Bitcoin for for four or five years. Mm-hmm. So uh, now would be a good time to purchase i think over four or five years it could dip lower but mm-hmm. i don't think you know three four five years from now it's going to be i think it'll be much higher so hmm. um 
but as on the short term, I don't know. I mean, it could. Honestly, this is a very, very, this is tougher than usual time to call a short term mm. uh, price, you know, whether it's a few weeks or a few months, it's like, who knows? I mean, some people think that uh, the Federal Reserve would start uh, printing again mm-hmm. and Bitcoin price would explode because it tends to react to that. Um, on the other hand, we could have more people who have lent out their Bitcoin as collateral, get that collateral taken from them and sold. Mm-hmm. And that could drive the price lower. So, I mean, there's all kinds of, there's been all kinds of craziness and shenanigans that we've talked about in previous episodes. Yep. that basically caused a bunch of Bitcoin to get sold. So we could see more of that or maybe not. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I remember I was also reading another article earlier this week that there, there's a lot of people like currently in Kiev uh, where the, where the Ukraine, you know, conflict is happening that you know a lot of them were crypto investors over there and they said that they're very happy that they went into cryptocurrency because it's it's all sealed in in a crypto format right mm-hmm. and so when the invasion happened and, and the whole conflict happened they were able to run out holding their their passcode so to speak and, and maintain most of of their wealth now a lot of it was still in a mon uh, a fiat currency but they were able to you know, at least take a good portion of it with them uh, out. And so that, that was a pro uh, argument for cryptocurrency and, and the utilization of just crypto in general. Now, with that being said, I don't know if they were fully in Bitcoin or they had other crypto you know, ties with it. And with the whole market going crazy right now, uh, they could have lost a good chunk of their wealth, but uh, they were happy that they were able to at least save some of it rather than lose all of it. So uh, just one of the benefits of cryptocurrencies, I think. Yeah, Bitcoin yeah. was, it, it really serves those kind of situations well. Yeah. It was almost like designed for political turmoil. Yeah. And, you know, if you have a fiat currency that could be attacked in various ways, the government could just change the value of it at the stroke of a pen or they could mm-hmm. uh, have massive inflation. Um, you could carry around gold and precious metals, but you can only carry so much and you can't mm-hmm. uh, necessarily chop it up and spend small amounts of it. So with cryptocurrency, uh, you can hold it in your brain. If you memorize uh, mm-hmm. 12 words that, you know, you can basically memorize those 12 words, destroy everything, destroy the computer. You don't have to carry a piece of paper or a USB stick or anything. Mm-hmm. You just have those 12 words in your brain and you can go across a border and redeem your bitcoin mm-hmm. yeah so utilization of crypto i think that that's that, that that was an interesting article to read so um i wanted to share that with you <laughs> so <laughs> anyways I, I still don't get crypto that well but I, i'm getting more of it now so uh, as we're continuing talking and i'm doing my own uh homework and reading up about it I, i'm slowly understanding the utilization of it as an investment, I still don't know yet. So, yeah. Well, yeah, it takes time. And I think yeah. that's a good, um, that's the right way to approach it is to don't invest until you say, okay, I get that this is something that I do want to own. And that mm-hmm. will take time. Cryptocurrency yeah. is a very unusual thing. It's kind of a new thing in the world that, yeah. that is kind of weird, you know? 
it is it is a force to be reckoned with and it's a very unclear foggy idea currently for me so Mm -hmm. but anyways with that being said what is on your mind for this week? Well, <laughs> I know we kind of went on a whole bunch of tangents just now, and we touched up on on certain uh, geopolitical issues as as we usually do uh, in, in our uh, off offline talks. But uh, what would, what what is on your mind this week, Sean? Um, I guess there's a lot of strange things going on in the economy at the same time, um, mm-hmm. and it's sort of interesting. I'm sort of like the the gif of the guy with the popcorn maybe michael jackson (laughs) Um, just yeah i mean you know there's all these uh commodities the price of oil everything is going up Uh um this is driving inflation uh the federal reserve really did not anticipate this level of inflation and uh now they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place Mm. um it's really it'll be interesting to see how that goes over the next three to six months there's pretty much some interesting stuff happens every day some some interesting news um Mm -hmm. japan earlier we talked about japan how they have been um doing quantitative easing which is Mm -hmm. basically i think they they started uh they sort of invented quantitative easing like 15 years ago yes but um Essentially, they are creating, they're printing brand new money. Mm-hmm. They're sort of creating yen out of thin air in order to buy the government's debt in the forms of, in the form of bonds. Yes, and um, that is that can put strain on investors' desire to own those bonds. You know, if mm-hmm. you're issuing debts, you would want to see, oh, these banks and financial institutions are. Uh, loaning japan money because they find it credit worthy instead mm-hmm. if you find japan is just bar- kind of borrowing from itself you know then mm-hmm. you say hmm uh why do they have to do that you know why doesn't somebody else want to take on those bonds so there's a there's a trade that people have called the widowmaker trade mm. where you um borrow japanese bonds and sell them it's which is shorting basically mm-hmm. that's how you short something is you borrow it and sell it mm-hmm. and then um the you know for years and years people have been doing this as a way of betting against japan and mm-hmm. thinking oh this idea that they're buying up their own bonds it's going to be a disaster it's going to come crashing down and so all these bonds that i borrowed will become worthless mm-hmm. and i can then I, I've made a bunch of profit, right? I've made a bunch of money on that gap um, because I can turn around and that's pay short back selling, price. right? Yeah, that's short okay, selling. Okay, okay. And um, they call it the widowmaker because Japan has been doing this, and so far it has not been a disaster. So everyone who's put a lot of money into this trade has lost money. Huh. And uh, now this whole thing is happening much more intensely. Japan has now bought up more than half of its own government debt mm-hmm. and people are saying oh now's the time when the disaster happens so now i'm gonna go into this widowmaker trade and it's and i'm gonna make money okay we shall see <laughs> let, let's take a step back because now i'm getting confused on the whole japan situation i thought i understood it so let, let, let's rewind just a little bit so right now japan's in a huge amount of debt right yeah their central banks currently are purchasing 
through the process of quantitative easing, where they're printing uh -huh. more money and purchasing government debt through bonds. Yes. Okay. So now, now the central bank is <laughs> okay. I, I, I got to get my, my, my terminologies right. So the, the central bank is owned by the government. It's not a private corporation, right? Um, or is it a private corporation? For they're Japan. connected. I they're know connected. how that okay. works in the U.S. I don't know exactly how that works okay. in Japan, but they're connected. Okay. So let's assume that it's the same as the U.S. Mm -hmm. So the central banks are functioning the exact same way. The Federal Reserve's functioning the exact same way. So Japan currently is purchasing all this debt by printing out a little bit more money. And... It, it, it's buying its its own debt. Okay, so now this this is where I'm confused. So why would why would the economy why would their own government purchase their own debt? What what benefit does that do? Um, because I know there's got to be a reason for for doing this, and it, is it to lower the the overall debt on paper? In, in a sense, or what is it? Um, yes. So the idea is um, whenever one of these bonds runs out, yeah, it, it has a, it has a, uh, you know, let's say it's a one-year bond and you got 1%. So you okay. go back a year later and the government, you know, you bought the bond for $100. Uh -huh. You go back a year later, the government's got to hand you $101. Yes. Now, if they um, still want to keep that debt as debt then what they have to do is roll over in other words they have to issue another bond okay you have to say okay we're paying this guy back but we got to pay issue a bond and we're going to pay him back okay with that money and so we're just going to keep keep it rolling you know so prolonging the debt prolonging the debt yeah which is normal uh okay you know all governments do it okay. and so that means on a regular basis they got to come out and say hey everybody uh you know, get buy some of our bonds. You know, we need you know a hundred dollars from you. How much do you need in return mm -hmm. a year from now? Mm -hmm. And there is a sort of an auction for that. Okay, right. And so when people, when there's not a lot of people who want to buy those bonds, when people are looking, uh, when people are having more of a negative attitude towards japan and towards its ability to pay off these bonds in the future mm -hmm. they're going to start asking for more money mm -hmm. so when the government comes out to issue new bonds they say all right give me 100 bucks what do you need next year and the person mm -hmm. says uh, 115 bucks mm -hmm. japan's like well we don't that that's a lot no mm -hmm. how about uh, 105 you know mm -hmm. and so they're constantly auctioning and and the government is trying to keep that number down the, mm. the amount of money they have to pay in the future. They're trying to lower the interest rate on their own debt. Mm. Um, now, the bonds that are already out there circulating, if nobody wants those, that's also direct re direct directly related to nobody wanting the new ones, right? Mm -hmm. And so the government can go out into the market and buy up the ones that are just being sold out there, right? To make the bonds more scarce. To instill supply and demand. Yes. 
Okay, so yeah. if they make it more scarce, then investors who are looking at them might be like, hey, wow, these bonds are, are getting gobbled up fast by someone. I don't know who, but I better get my, my share now because it looks promising kind of thing. Yeah. Kind Is of. that the mentality they're trying to instill in the market now? Potentially. Yes. Potentially, yeah. yeah. Now okay. people do know who's buying it, oh, but okay. it still can create um, uh, confidence, mm-hmm. but people are still not sure exactly to what extent that really create creates confidence right that's mm-hmm. sort of the the debate and that's sort of the battle and that's why someone would go in and short it because they think no this is fake confidence and mm-hmm. it's going to come crashing down hmm. yeah because I, I know that the prime minister of japan at least back in 2012 i think or or some some early 2010 era uh, there was a new prime, prime minister that came on board and was really proactive in trying to reverse the deflation aspect of Japan. I'm just going to edit in this quick note. A few days after we recorded this, a former prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was actually assassinated. Um, so just to let you guys know that that is the person we're talking about. Back to the show. He had like these rules where, you know, we're going to print uh, more money. We're going to do more quantitative easing. We're going to we're going to uh, spend more. We're going to not save as much, et cetera. And he was really pushing for it. And I don't know what the effects that had on the overall Japanese market uh, within the decade. Uh, I don't know if it was a positive reversal or it made it more in debt. I, so but that's what I've heard. And I'm not sure. Like I said, because culture, cultural values has a lot to play uh, in, in, in these types of policy. And I'm not sure if adopting that policy is going to work w- w- with, the, with the culture. I, I could see his reason for that, but I'm not sure if it's working. It, it sounds very, it sounds like it's not working as well, especially if Japan's been in the news recently. So I do remember this was around the time I was really becoming uh, an economics geek. Okay. And so I do remember his name was Shinzo Abe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, he, people actually called his program Abenomics. Mm-hmm. Uh, or some people who speak English called it Abenomics. But Shinzo Abe. So, <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I just, Uh, I also don't remember what exactly the results were. So I pulled up Wikipedia and it says uh, during Abe's tenure, Mm -hmm. the rate of Japan's nominal GDP growth was higher. Really? And the ratio of government debt relative to national income stabilized for the first time in decades. Wow. Uh, Yes. However, okay. Let's see. So he had sort of three arrows. I believe he was prime minister. Let me. Uh, Yes, he was was prime minister. So there was uh, not only was there sort of uh, monetary easing. So there was there was three arrows of his program. Number one was monetary easing from the Bank of Japan. Okay. Number two was fiscal stimulus through government spending. Mm -hmm. And the third was structural reforms. Mm. I don't know. I would have to do some reading to figure out what exactly the structural reforms were. Yeah. But um, it seems like it worked relatively well for a while now what some 
people would argue is that this type of thing is a way of kicking the can down the road. Mm. And so he, it seems like he may have just been successful at kicking the can down the road further. Mm. So what happens now <laughs> is totally still kind of up in the air. You know? uh, I just love how we were, we're both just silent. It's like, okay, we'll call it Japan. <laughs> Kick the can down the road. Oh, I, anyways, uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that that's, yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't know. I really hope that, well, I mean, every cycle, right everything go anything that goes up must come down and everything that goes down eventually will come up somehow and i'm just hoping that with japan's case at least with the whole long-term cycle i i hope that they're getting closer to that turnaround period and maybe abonomics is there to catalyze that um but i'm not sure because per capita the gdp per capita i think is on par if if I recall, it was on par with that of a de- of other developed nations, right? It's not like so. even though overall their sh- their economy was you know in in the deflation period, but per capita their GDP was on par with everybody else's. So it looks to be that at least the citizens are still very productive. It's not like they're they're just giving up and and just letting it spiral downwards. They're still being very productive in general. It's just that their population is declining with a deflationary period Mm -hmm. and i think that that's what's giving it it's really negative downward trend but if their population i think was to increase right then we might potentially see a reversal in that in in that deflation because now you have a higher population in a 20-year time span when the new birth rate is old enough to be productive members of society then we're going to see productivity shoot through the roof and then you know, inflation going up again. Mm. At least that's how I understood economics. Yeah. Right. Yeah, if they do, if they've got more people that should contribute to economic growth. Mm-hmm. And I, now I don't know if they have, I don't know if they will get mm. more people. Who knows? Um, it doesn't seem like they've got a lot of immigration there. And Not yet. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they have strong birth rates either. So mm. Well, right now, I think China is actually working on trying to reverse their birth rate situation because of that uh, one child uh, policy, family policy way back when, because due to the overpopulation, now they have a huge drastic cut in population uh, with the new developing generations. And I think right now, China is trying to reverse that because they don't want to be in a similar shoe as Japan. So they're trying to instill and encourage a lot of the younger generation to, you know, uh, uh, include women in the workforce as well as provide plenty of daycare centers now. They're, they're supposedly building more daycare centers as well as um, longer uh, leave of absence for you know uh, mo- new, new, new mothers, so to speak. And so I'm not sure if that's going to help. Um, I don't know if the damage has already been done, but they're trying things out. And if they're able to be very successful in that, and we do see a huge increase in population within the next five, 10 years, uh, I think that's going to be good news for at least China in general, if they don't want to be in the same shoe as Japan. Yep. And what's interesting is both China and Japan have uh, 
movements. I don't know how big these movements are, but mm. there's uh, groups of young men who basically mm-hmm. get online and talk about how, you know, working hard is not as rewarded as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And both in China and Japan, there's very extreme cultural attitudes toward working hard. Like in yes. China, they have a nine, nine, six system, yeah. which is basically work nine hours for six days a week. Yeah. And so uh, in, in China, they have these kids talking about lying flat. Mm-hmm. And it's basically this idea that, you know what? Just sit back and play video games, basically. Uh, it's a low desire, more indifferent attitude towards life. And it's mm-hmm. basically like, you know, why do I have to put all this effort into getting married and having kids? I got video games and I don't need to go out work my butt off all the time you know and then a little different in japan there's a thing called hikikomori yep um which is like hermit right i think it translates to indoor hermit or something like that uh yeah i think so or i think it might be grass eater okay anyways uh oh yeah pulling inward being confined Yeah. yeah so you're you're right yeah yeah um um they are socially withdrawn mm-hmm. um, and they just limit their professional and economic ambitions and simplify their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting that these, you know, both of these countries had periods of extreme growth, right? In mm-hmm. Japan, it was really the eighties in China. It was uh, really the last 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um And I think there's a maximum level of hard work that you can get out of people, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think people will choose to uh, shift into a lower gear. Well, I think it's overall, uh, the population is still very, very hardworking. I mean, like you said, and and it's actually, especially in Korea, uh, it's actually frowned upon if you leave before your boss leaves. As a culture, at least that's from my understanding. It's like you work, even though it's it your job is done at 5 p.m. For instance, if your boss hasn't left yet, you keep working and not get paid for those hours because culturally, uh, it, it, it's it's how can you leave when your boss is so hardworking and you're just leaving, right? And that's a big cultural difference between the Asian, at least the Korean culture, uh, and I want to say to extent the Chinese and Japanese culture as well, but I don't know for sure. Uh, and the American culture, where it's like, hey, 5 p.m., I'm off the clock, I'm done, right? And for us, we, we like that because we want to have our own lives as well. We want to be able to spend time with our family. But in the culture over there, it's like, no, it, it's, it's, you have to work. And if you don't work and your colleagues are still there with your boss and you leave early, then it's pretty much you're, you're, you're frowned upon heavily. And mm-hmm. essentially, you're firing yourself if you do that. Um, at least to my understanding. Again, I, I don't know for sure because I've never worked in that environment, but from what I've been told, uh, that that is generally the consensus over there. So I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so again, I've only talked to what, 10 or five, five to 10 people about this stuff. So um, yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, yeah. I do, I would say that uh, Japan is probably a much more 
tight knit and much mm-hmm. more close of a culture versus China, which is so huge. And it's mm-hmm. so many different cultures that mm-hmm. they part of the government's whole thing they do over there in China is to try and unify the culture. And it's mm-hmm. so hard because it's a giant collection of, of a bunch of different groups of people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very similar to how the United States is. If you want to just have a, a similarity, I mean, United States, we're allowing a lot of immigration coming in and it's all different cultures. So to unify the United States, uh, thankfully we don't have to, because that's the whole premise of what the United States was built on. Uh, but China, you know, they, they want to have, you know, one collective idea, one collective mind, so to speak. Um, and that is the, the, the Chinese culture. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually did want to mention a little bit about the gaming sector because, you know, that, that's kind of the, the thing that I was interested in uh, researching in uh, way back when. And, you know, the idea that people are now staying at home, not wanting to go to work because, you know, if you work outside, it's too hard. You might you much rather enjoy your time indoors on a computer in an artificial world, so to speak. So you're detaching yourself from what is reality. And, you know, and, and that's what we see with, with a lot of the Japanese workers as well as the Chinese workers where they're, they're spending most of their time in cyber cafes, right? I believe there was a story one time I, I read in the newspaper where there was a, um, a Chinese worker, girl, I think, who became homeless but no one knew she was homeless because she was always in a cyber cafe and she was making all of her revenue through streaming. Um, and even though she didn't have a home to live in. And so uh, we're, we're in this day and age where streaming esports and everything has become such a huge phenomenon that why, and I think a lot of them are thinking why work the gruesome hours in that, that is, you know, nine, nine, six or 12, 12, five right mm-hmm. in that environment when i could have more fun spend more time online playing a video game and talking to people in a virtual world and i make money doing that and so i think that's why there is such a huge boom in the esports room especially in china right mm-hmm. and you know the only way that you can actually get a, a really good job at least based on my limited understanding, and I really have to emphasize my limited understanding because I really don't know too much about this. But from my research is the only way to get a good paying job is to go to a good name school. Like, and if you don't get to the, like the top tier universities, unfortunately no employer in that culture is going to look at you and hire you. Right. If you're not graduated from Harvard, don't even, don't even apply here because only Harvard graduates apply here. So in a sense, like just to build an analogy here. So, and unfortunately, if you're in the lower ranked schools, and I hate using that term, but essentially if you are, uh, if you graduated from a lower ranked school in, in the, in that culture, the, the jobs that you're going to get is like a common uh, everyday job uh, type of thing. Uh, in essence, a, 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 an average paying job, not a high paying job. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why there's a huge shift because, you know, uh, people don't want to be s- stuck in that stressful, stressful environment forever, right? 
especially going through high school, going through college, and you have to be the top of the top of the top. And with when you're competing against 800 classmates or a thousand or 10,000, whatever the number might be, and there's only 10 seats open, it, it's really stressful. So, and I think that's, that's the whole premise of the idea that the gaming sector has been heavily increasing. And then it, it expanded into the Western culture as well. And now we see a lot of Westerners uh, doing live streaming, Twitch, etc. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a fascinating thing. And I, me being one of those numbers too, because I, I did my stream before this podcast, you know, I was uh, a fairly decent, I, I don't want to say super successful, but I, I, I did all right for myself uh, as a streamer. And so it was, it, it was a fun experience. So I, I do have to say, I mean, meeting people from around the world, it's, it's, it's been really fun. So nice yeah 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 not meaning to plug myself in like that but you know (laughs) (laughs) don't ask what my streamer name is (laughs) so you can plug yourself if you want Mm -mm. um this this channel is about investments (laughs) in the economy not my streaming (laughs) so but i don't know i mean you've seen a huge boom in in the twitch streaming gaming culture right Mm -hmm. and it's getting bigger I mean, I just recently, and I'm going to tell everyone on the podcast, I just recently bought myself a Nintendo Switch, okay? I haven't purchased a new station, a new Nintendo station since ever. And when the Switch first came out, I didn't even purchase it. It's been about six or seven years. I don't know when the Nintendo Switch came out, but Mm -hmm. I just purchased it this year, right? And I have to tell you, on a gaming perspective, on, on just the portability and the ease of gaming and being able to connect it through an HDMI onto a capture card on a computer and record yourself playing it, I can see why a lot of streamers use the Nintendo Switch because there's it, it's so simple and so easy to use. Um, and I think Nintendo, as a company, did a brilliant move making their console game handheld and portable. I think that was a fascinating, fascinating move on their part. And PlayStation uh, tried to do it with the PSP. Xbox, I mean, they have the computer, the, the Microsoft computer, but it's not portable yet. And I think that more and more gaming console is going to go towards that idea of just portability for the ease of use as well as for the ease of streaming because we are seeing a bigger population going towards this route through the entertainment route, through, uh, you know, uh, live streaming or, or, or uh, uh, playthroughs, etc. And, you know, I think that was the whole idea of the, um, I think it was Google that did Stadia, right? Mm-hmm. The, the whole cloud gaming uh, movement. I, I don't think Stadia worked as intended uh, because, again, the whole premise of Stadia was for anybody to play these amazing games at high quality graphics because not everyone could afford a you know Nvidia GeForce 1080 Ti whatever the heck the new number is now right mm-hmm. not everyone can afford that and so being able to connect yourself through the internet and play on a server which it which has the graphics card 
to uh, have you play at the highest resolution possible. I think that was the whole concept of it, but I don't think they understood that to upload it to or download it in, in terms of the user's perspective to download that quality to their computer was the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't know too much about the IT realm, so but I think that's what that was the whole downfall of Stadia. I think they're still trying to do something with Stadia, but I, I don't think it's as efficient currently. Yeah, I don't know the details either, but I've heard that that Stadia didn't work out. Yeah, and yeah, that would be that's probably what it was was just getting that amount of data. You know, mm-hmm. um, it takes a lot of of data to stream mm-hmm. well not only that i mean if you're having a hundred user using the same node right and let's talk a little bit it quickly i mean mm-hmm. I, I can imagine they have one node which is the channel that exports out the data from the google servers if you're having huge traffic jamming that funnel it, it's gonna it's gonna be um <laughs> a, a a heavy drop in in, in uh download speed and uh, and such so yeah and there's there's the issue of latency yes. which is essentially the amount of time it takes for information to get from one place to the other yep um which is different from bandwidth okay. because like if you imagine uh netflix you're watching a netflix video mm-hmm. uh it may take a second or two to sort of you know it to have a spinning wheel or something and then the, the movie starts yes and what could basically happen is they could send a large amount of information and it can take a while for it to get to you, but that's fine Mm -hmm. because it's going to sort of store it up and make sure that as you're viewing it, it's seamless. Mm -hmm. Um, With a video game, what happens is let's say you click to fire your gun or something. Mm -hmm. The information has to go from your computer Mm -hmm. all the way to their server get Mm -hmm. processed Mm -hmm. to you know show what the video game is going to do as the result of your click and then send it all the way back Mm. so there's they can't just um they can't create the illusion of it being fast it has to be fast it has Mm -hmm. to get all the way there do its thing and get back like immediately and if it doesn't then you're going to have a bad experience and no one wants to play right yeah no one one wants wants to to have where I push a button and it takes two seconds to fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, the, the, the latency is probably what I was looking for then, not 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 the actual bandwidth then. Yeah, I mean it's just you know technical terminology. Yeah. <laughs> I got the idea right. I thought it would be interesting to describe that. <laughs> Thank you for helping me out. <laughs> I was on the right track. You gotta give me credit for that. All right. Yeah, but yeah, anyways, definitely. no, and I think that you know in terms of the gaming culture. Um, the Nintendo Switch, man, it, it's 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 a good product. Uh, I have to say, at least being a first user. And now, I'm not sponsored by Nintendo at all. I don't own Nintendo stocks or anything of that sort. I'm just a user right now. And, you know, I never thought that I would fall in love with the, the Nintendo Switch. I mean, it's a very convenient console. And, you know, I, I have a PlayStation. I have a, a Nintendo 64, you know, and such, but it's the Nintendo Switch, man. It's 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 great, and I don't know. Uh, I, I'm going to be looking more to into like the gaming sector just to see what else is out there, um, because 
you know, with the huge demographic going towards an online type of uh, reality, so to speak, I, I think that gaming sector might be a, a huge uh, component to that growing demographic. So at least on an investment standpoint, not, not too sure overall if that's going to be plausible in 10, 20 years down the road, but, you know, being able to escape from reality and from, you know, the harshness of, you know, a deflationary period and just want to have a good time and just enjoy company with friends and family. I think that's going to be, uh, I think that's what's on everyone's mind uh, if, if times are tough, you know? Mm-hmm. So at least that's what we did see, at least with the, I think it was during World War II um, or right before the World Wars that we saw a huge spike in uh, alcohol consumption, cigarette consumption, uh, anything that took people out of reality uh, for, for a short time. Mm-hmm. I think there was a huge growth in that point, if I recall correctly. Now, I could be wrong, but I, I really think that was the case. And so uh, if we are heading for that super downwind, um, who knows, right? Yep. But yeah, I know I talked a little bit about gaming. I didn't expect to talk about gaming today. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. What other sectors do you think is going to be really beneficial uh, with the overall economic environment? I mean... I'm really trying to extrapolate out of this because you sent me that video of, of China having that tax issue, right? Mm-hmm. And so if, if we were to take ourselves into the, the China's position where they're having a huge time trying to get people to pay taxes, and again, uh, we don't know if the information is actually completely true because, you know, uh, how can we? Uh, every information is always going to be somewhat biased. But if what the video said was true, and I'll post up the link down uh, down in the description, and people are having a hard time paying their taxes or not paying their taxes, and China keeps growing at a fast growth rate, and you know, for government to keep up with the productivity, it needs funding, and funding comes straight from taxation from. Uh, donations whatever mainly taxes i think that's how government gets funded right by the people Mm -hmm. and if if most of the population is not paying their taxes or most of the population can't even afford taxes and you only tax the extremely wealthy business people to make up for the rest of the population taxation that's going to be a huge issue at least for china's economic perspective Mm -hmm. Like what would what would be a good solution just just to help mitigate that? I mean, would opening up the market to become a free market, like demo the democratic market, not with Chinese characteristics, but just open it completely? Would that help the economy of China? In the short, in in the long run, probably. But in the short run, it's hard to say. Hmm. Um, I think, and I suspect China probably wouldn't necessarily go that way. Probably not. Um, they might. I mean, they're they're they've shown they're not totally closed off to that. But their ability to control individual pieces of their hmm. economy is is 
probably more than a lot of other countries. So they may be able to find some weird solution that just involves forcing millions of people to do things that they don't want to do or to lose money or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really hard to say China. Um, they can definitely be pretty creative and do some, some weird stuff. Now I've also, there's, there's a variety of different things going on in China. So there's a bunch of moving parts. There's, you know, the lockdowns mm-hmm. that I believe have lifted. Um, there's, I guess in October, Xi Jinping starts his his third term, which would be like a, a break with history where he's going beyond two. Um, beyond two, where mm-hmm. all the previous rulers have, have only done two. Mm-hmm. So I think there could be some political turmoil, uh, you know, for the next few months. And that could be part of it, you know. It's really hard to say. Yeah, it's it's a lot to take in. It's a, it's really a lot to take in. Um, yeah. Well, we have it going for an hour, so if uh, you want, we could. Uh, that's true. Wrap it up. You think this is a good place to stop? Probably. Sure. You know. I don't sure. Know. Why not? All right, everyone. Thank you so much for watching. For listening to today's uh, episode on geopolitics, economics, and all. Uh, it's it's really interesting how how everything ties together. I mean, just with the investing world and and just with what's going on. Thank you everyone so much for listening. Uh, if you really like the content, uh, don't forget to leave a comment down below. Uh, let us know your thoughts and opinions on this subject matter. And until next time, I'll see everyone in the next uh, recording. And Sean will too. So yes. till then, don't trade a dollar for a penny. Take care, everyone. See you.